0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Rothay Park in the centre of Ambleside with author, illustrator, and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Back again. I love Rothay Park. I've always loved it. I love how busy it is. We've got people playing football, we've got kids in the playground kids also coming out of school here and what i'd really love is those little knobbles with the oaks on
1: the rocks that glaciers have not been able to disturb that have become engrossed in oak trees and beech trees divine at this time of year
0: yeah the color's just turning now really we've got blue skies at the moment it's been a gorgeous autumnal morning clouds coming in a little bit so we will um, go steadily and keep our eyes on the heavens And we're talking today, Mark, about a historic figure who doesn't really get the space or recognition that perhaps she deserves.
1: No, indeed. I've heard of Harriet Martineau, but I'm not fully au fait in her position in the literary tradition. And uh, our guest today, Kerry Andrews, has just written a book and will give us a full picture of her significance within the context of the Romantic period.
0: Yeah, so Harriet... Martineau comes up to the lakes to build a life for herself and publishes, for that era, one of the biggest-selling guidebooks that has ever been published to the lakes. Amazing. And creates this whole life for herself here in the same time period as Wordsworth and Coleridge. Yes,
1: they seem like the most illustrious time in history for writing. Mm. And the friendships and the ideas that must have been flowing must have been Amazing.
0: And you've devised a route for us today, Mark, that follows in some of Martineau's footsteps.
1: Yes, indeed. We'll probably visit the house that she built in Ambleside, and we'll go to the Stepping Stones, which was such a popular place that she loved, and then through Rydal Park, Rydal Hall, and then by Rydal Water itself to Luffrey Cavern, then up over the shoulder of Luffrey Fell to Lily Tarn and straight down to Miller Bridge. Should be a lovely little outing
0: great little wonder at any time of year really but yes with the colors turning it should be wonderful so let's go and meet Kerry
1: I'm standing in the midst of Rothy Park beside the football pitch and adjacent to the primary school and they're all just coming out in the afternoon, we're right by that wonderful edifice of the parish centre by the spired parish church and I can see through to uh, Heron Pike and Great Rig Man over the trees. Now I'm in the company of Kerry Andrews, welcome to Country Stride. Thank you very much indeed. Can you give us a little bit of a background to where you come from? Sure. I live in the Scottish Borders, uh, just north of Gala
2: uh, I do a lot of my walking up in the borders. I work at a university near Liverpool, which is an improbable situation, but that's uh, where I'm based for work. Um, I'm a reader in English literature there, um, and I'm also a writer.
1: So you're a great traveller from that. <laughs> <laughs> Involuntarily, yes. So, your great passion, I believe, is walking. It is indeed one of my great passions. And up in the Baldies, it's a great landscape to do it.
2: Yes, really lucky. The hills are absolutely glorious. Lots of old drove roads and routes to explore. Lots of lovely um, towns as well to have cafes to finish up in, which is my (laughs) perfect kind of walk.
1: But the Lake District, in turn, has its magic and it's attracted people down the ages. And our topic for today is... Well, we're going to be talking a little
2: bit about Harriet Martineau, I hope, who's um, a, a very famous resident and perhaps not as famous as she deserves. What makes Harriet Martineau so special is that she was incredibly unwell in between periods of being hugely active as a walker and turned up in the Lake District in the 1840s intent on making herself into what she called a laker. She didn't come from here, she didn't belong here, but she wanted to root herself here and the walking that she did here was part of the formation of a new identity for herself. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff about why she ends up here and the walking that she does as a result.
1: Now you've written about Harriet, And it's part of a wider context of other writers, women walkers, covering all kinds of periods. What's the title of the book? Um, The book's called Wanderers, A
2: History of Women Walking, and it covers women writers from the early part of the 18th century all the way through to the present day and puts them into context and creates this sense of what I hope is a female tradition of of women walkers that we can draw on. One of the things I hope that my book does is demonstrate that that 50% of the population has always been walking. And if we think about walking's origins, as a necessary form of transport. If you couldn't afford a horse or a, a cart, that was how you got about. So women have been walking for literally as long as humans have been about. But the particular kind of culturally significant walking that gets associated with people like William Wordsworth, John Keats, John Clare, Henry Thoreau, and on and on into the 19th and 20th centuries, that somehow has become the preserve of men. And it's not because the stories aren't there. They absolutely are. You don't even need to look that far into the archives. We've just somehow told ourselves that women wouldn't have wanted to they were too afraid to they didn't have time to so people haven't bothered looking for those tails It's a very fertile research area When did you first grasp the idea? It was Reading Robert Macfarlane's *The Old Ways*. Now, I, I was absolutely say that I'm a massive Robert Macfarlane fan, and I adore the way he writes. It's so lyrical and very, very beautiful. But I was quite struck that he only mentioned in the whole course of his book one woman, and that was Nan Shepherd, who I've also written about in my book. And she's a fantastic writer, and I'm glad she was there. But the way in which Macfarlane drew on um, other male poets as sort of the touchstones for his his walking made me wonder: Well, do women do that? Are there stories available for women? And then reading more broadly beyond Macfarlane into other books that I am not going to name because they got me really cross. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, 200 and 300 page long books with two or four pages on women. It just struck me as extraordinary. So my academic training is in the 18th century and in archival research. So I just started to see if this was true. I just tested it out by going to see if the documents were there. And they absolutely were. And the story began to emerge. So
1: what specific route have you got in mind there, Kerry?
2: Well, I thought we'd take one of the routes that's mentioned in one of the books that she writes about, A Year in Ambleside, which she recounts a whole, obviously, 12-month period that she published monthly in an American journal. And it's a walk that she describes as being really important to that creative process. Um, This was the walk that she wanted to avoid people that she would take on. So we're going to head up the Rothay and, and see where that takes us. Brilliant.
1: Well, we've come past all the houses and shops in the very busy street, I'm amazed by it. We went past the apple pie bakery, Armit Museum of the Bridge House, National Trust's dainty little house on a bridge. We've seen a blue plaque too, Harriet Martineau, and we sneak round the back to a very handsome, substantial, very private now building, South Knoll, which Kerry, I believe, was Harriet's home.
2: It certainly was, Mark. Um, this is the house that she had built for herself after she came to the Lake District in the early eighteen forties, and it's uh, my first time seeing it. it's an absolutely extraordinary home. What a beautiful place to live, and the contrast with the busy streets of Ambleside. I wonder if it was similar in Martineau's day, the peace and tranquility of this spot. Um, but this is where she set herself up as a Lake District writer, a sort of a second career for Martineau, who in her earlier eighteen thirties had been very prominent as a sociologist, one of the first women sociologists and had built up a very impressive literary reputation. She'd moved from the Midlands down to London and had attracted a lot of attention. In the 1830s, she went off on a long tour of um, the United States and came back full of ideas and lots of literary acquaintances um, and then fell incredibly ill with oh, a mysterious really? illness that it's difficult to diagnose in retrospect, but which left her bedbound or at least room bound for five years of her life. Ooh. So this incredibly busy 1830s was overtaken by this this illness that left her with just a telescope, really, as a way of accessing the outside world. And she then experienced a miracle cure through mesmerism.
1: Hypnosis, as we call it today.
2: Yes, that sort of thing. Um, a set of treatments that were being explored in the, in the 19th century that were very, very popular and for Martineau had a transformational effect on her health and very gradually over the next few weeks she started to walk more and more and as her recovery progressed she came to visit some friends in the Lake District and that's when she fell in love with the place and decided to move here and purchase the land upon which the knoll is now been built and set up home for herself here.
1: So, the setting here, we slightly on slightly raised ground beside the busy road. What is busy now, it would have been busy with horses and carts in the, her day. The, the nature of the setting, how would you describe it?
2: It was um, countryside, and uh, if you, we had a sneaky peek at the uh, balcony on the uh, at the property just now, we could see the, the Roth A just below us. So, a really nice location, have a little bit of privacy, but easy access to everything that the town had to offer. I think that balance between the busyness of the nearby streets and the privacy of this place was really important. One of the things that Martino writes about is her friends and herself having to evade the holiday crowds that were starting to come to the Lake District, um, and they would run away elsewhere. So the privacy of this space, this, this lovely raised spot that we've had to work quite hard to find, um, I think would have been quite hard for others to find as well, which I wonder if that was part of its appeal to Martineau.
1: In order to build a, a substantial pile, as you would call it today, uh, she had to have resources, Yes,
2: yes, she would have done. And certainly from her earlier successes as a writer in the 1830s, um, she built a very successful literary career. Uh, She wouldn't have been the first woman. There were other women earlier in the century who made livelihoods from writing. Um, But I imagine Martineau's fortunes built from her writing would have been the the basis for the the house that she was able to build here.
1: So she's here at the age of, I don't know, 42-ish. She was a spinster? Yes, she was. She was unmarried, um,
2: but had very close relations with her family uh, and had lots of very close friendships as well. And and that social life was very important to Martineau uh, and and an essential part of who
1: she was as a writer as well. And I think we've had a really good time here. We'll uh, move on down the road a little bit further see what we come up with. How frustrating, the stepping stones. There are at least three inches of water <laughs> running over that. Anyway, we backtracked and we've come on to the main road and then joined the lane that leads to Rydal Hall, which goes through a wonderful park uh, where the Ambleside Sports are held. Grand setting. You can see Low Pike, Fairfield, Great Rig, Heron Pike, Nabscar and Ukrag. There's somebody standing on Ukrag, which is part of Luffrig. It's a great spot. Now, this is one of Harriet's keen walks, one of her many walks.
2: Yes, absolutely. The Stepping Stones was somewhere that Martin and I really liked to go. And she had different walks for different moods, different seasons, different times of the year, different purposes as well. So although we've missed out on the Stepping Stones, which I, I am sad about, we have somehow managed to pitch up in the perfect place, sort of in the middle of, of a lot of those different walks. And, and looking at Fairfield is really appropriate because that's the walk that she recommends to visitors to the Lake District and talks very lovingly about the sun setting from that high point and the views over the Lake District that you get from there. So We are in the middle of of all things to do with Martineau's favourite walks
1: here. So Harriet, poor soul, for five years was incarcerated, more or less stranded in a bed, but she did recover sufficiently to get out. Other writers have had similar obstacles to their creativity.
2: There are, as you say, a number of writers who found walking really important for... Personal recovery is not just from physical illness but from also uh, personal trauma uh, and from personal issues that are going on in the background. there seems to be something very cathartic about walking, uh, which isn't to say that it was a cure for their particular difficulties, but it certainly helped them live better alongside them. So someone like Sarah Stoddart Hazlitt, who was walking around Edinburgh and Scotland in the early 19th century, um, she was being divorced by her husband, a total cad, the, the writer William Hazlitt, um, and she experienced the degradations of that divorce proceeding. Bol- complaints. She had horrible stomach illnesses, and walking helped her feel better, helped to bring that under control, Uh, probably originating psychological distress that walking helped ease. But people like Anais Nin as well, who was walking in Paris and in New York and in other city environments, she found walking on the pavements and on the streets very important to her mental health. And for Virginia Woolf too, walking in London, she writes really interestingly about how walking on the pavements helps her access the inner rooms of her mind. For her, there was a direct connection between the physical pacing out on the streets and accessing and managing her mental spaces as well. And for someone like Cheryl Strade much more recently, walking has played a really important role in enabling the accommodation of quite significant personal traumas to do with losing loved ones, to do with personal addiction, with the failure of marriages. The walk does does not do away with that damage, but these women seem to have found a way to live better with those difficulties by the act of walking.
1: So, when she's in Tynemouth, Harriet is gaining strength, but when she moves to the Lake District and Ambleside, she's gaining tremendous figure.
2: Yes, that's right. And the early walks that she records, she's, she's very proud to have walked a mile, then a mile and a half, two miles, three miles, five miles, 10 miles. she, and she writes all of these in, in her letters. She documents it very carefully. Um, and she goes down to Nottingham to stay with friends and she walks around the meadows there uh, near the Trent and is again, very proud of the distances that she's able to cover and how good she feels but when she moves to the Lake District, that escalates again and she arrives and what she determines to walk the horizon, she intends to map the place with her feet. So that trajectory of recovery for Martineau is
1: really quite quite amazing. Well, the sun keeps coming in and out, but just the moment he's out, so we'll get out and get further on. Wonderful spot here a Kerry. Walked a little bit further along that lovely track, uh, through the park, and we've come to a point just below Rydal Hall, where the beck, Rydal Beck, comes crashing through what's called the Grot. And there's a wonderful waterfall, a little building there set up like a little window on a magical world. It was set up in 1668. There's a little plaque here that tells you about the historic gardens and this particular setting. So this is a little bit of the picturesque, the birth of of the whole notion of picturesque. Now, let's get back to Harriet. She moves here and she gives herself a great task. What was that task? The task she set herself when she
2: arrived here was to learn the Lake District, um, to become a Laker, uh, which is what she calls it. So to move from being an incomer into being someone who belongs here, who is hefted to the landscape in some really important ways. What
1: Was the word a uh, laker coined by her?
2: No, I don't believe so, um, but it was a word that she understood to mean having the right to, to belong to the place. Not just someone who was passing through, but someone who was very closely bonded to the place and all that it meant. And she set herself that task, and the way she was going to complete that task was to walk across the whole Lake District. And over the next 12 months or so, that's pretty much what she did. Some extraordinarily long walks. Um, She sometimes walked with nieces and nephews who've come up from the Midlands. Um, Goodness knows what they made of it being dragged over Hill and Dale. Downpours, uh, soaking them through. Writes off these letters to her friends. Excuse journey ink, she says, as she she pens these things where she says, I've walked 30 miles. We've walked through thunderstorms. And weren't they wonderful? (laughs) Um, I'm not quite so sure. The whole party thought that they were wonderful. But she certainly relished that experience of challenge, of exploring the whole, as as much as she could certainly, of the Lake District that she visited. I think almost every lake she knew, pretty much every mountain pass, and she walked a lot of the high ground as well. So a really thorough grounding in the Lake District's geography.
1: So this sense of
2: belonging, it, it meant a lot to her? Yes, and, and it's, you can see it in that act of buying land in Ambleside and building a house as well. There's, there's a lot of homemaking going on in all sorts of ways. You know, the, the literal act of building a home for herself, but also building a sense of knowledge of being rooted to the place, of, of really being embedded in the landscape, of knowing every part of it. Uh, and then being able to write authoritatively about it. The motivations for that are really interesting because it's a commercially shrewd move. The Lake District is increasingly popular amongst tourists. So if you can write a guidebook, that's a good way of getting yourself an income. So there was a commercial element to that. There was also a literary element to that. This is a way of re-establishing a literary career that's flagged because of that very long period of illness that we've talked about. There's a few motivations in play here. But rooted at the bottom of that is this love of the Lake District that she expresses so powerfully in her writing.
1: You mention about this great walk she did, and some of her guests uh, begged for mercy because she walked such incredible distances, dragged them along. That's right, and not just the distances, but the speed at which she walked
2: as well. So yes, leaving more than one gentleman in her wake. Um, So, some lovely moments in her letters where she's writing to her friends about these poor men left for dead by the side of the the road, I think, effectively. Um, But Martineau, before she became ill, was a very capable, uh, accomplished walker. She did a, a long tour of Scotland with her brother, I think they were walking for about a month, and covering 500 miles in that period, so substantial distances every day. And I think her return to those sorts of distances when she's in the Lake District marks the completion of that recovery. She's back to her old self. But Martineau was always a little bit wary of those long distances. When she started to feel ill in the late 1820s, she did start to wonder whether she was walking too much. And her friendship with the Wordsworths that developed after she moved to the Lake District, that becomes part of what they talk about. And Martineau puts in her letters um, about the conversations that she has with William Wordsworth, where he warns her about walking too far. And that, I think, is, is in part because his sister, uh, Dorothy, is by this point quite, quite seriously unwell with some sort of bodily and mental decline, which her family attributed to her habit of walking enormously long distances. So Dorothy, having been one of the really important pioneers of walking in the Lake District, then becomes transformed into this really sad warning that's offered to Martina, which I'm glad to say she took absolutely
1: no heed of. Uh, It pays to uh, ignore so-called caution. (laughs) The Lake is all about adventure. Well, you know, I I love the English climate and we got a wonderful uh, weather forecast this morning. So we we delayed our start because it was completely wet this morning and dry this afternoon. However, I think we've got tomorrow's weather because it's raining again. So we'll, we'll plod on towards Rydal and see how we get on. This is a delight, Kerry. We've come onto the shingly bank of Rydal water. I've clapped my eyes on it. And in fact, there's two folk clapping more than their eyes on it, they're just swimming in it. And the leaves now, they're so gorgeous. The bracken is brown, the leaves are that wonderful russet tone. Who could wish for any better season of the year? You get this sense of freedom here, and this is something that uh, Harriet was very much into.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and that recovery um, from her illness and then the beginnings of that, that walking really did open up all sorts of freedom. And she wrote, you know, for the first time in my life, I am free to live as I please. My life is now one of wild roving. And that was really important to her was just to be able to go off and walk as and when she chose in this landscape that she'd fallen so deeply in love with. But freedom was also an important thing for, for several of the women that I write about. Um, Elizabeth Carter, um, vicar's daughter from Deal in Kent, she very much wanted to be so free and so wild that the local justices would mistake her for a vagabond and take her up and arrest her. And she dragged her companions through hedges, through ditches, joked in her letters about windmilling them along at, at enormous speeds. She must have been a terrifying walking companion. And Ellen Wheaton too, who also walked in the Lake District in the 1820s, a governess from, from Lancashire who was um, also walking in Snowdon and walked over the Isle of Man on her own she really found that solo walking enormously liberating
1: I really get this sense of this freedom what is the nature of it?
2: it's a complicated thing and it, and it varies between the, the, the women and it varies over history as well in part it's, it's a freedom to be yourself it's a freedom to experience your own interiority to explore your own physicality to understand your own body in a wild environment that, that, there's a freedom in that too for some of the women it was at times a freedom from things Sarah Stoddart Hazlitt walks as a freedom from the oppression of being divorced unwillingly by a husband who's concocted an awful plan to be caught in a brothel in adultery to legitimate a Scottish divorce. She's definitely walking apart to free herself from those sorts of restrictions. But for for other women, the freedom comes from being able to take yourself off, to to being able to take yourself up to the top of things, to being able to challenge yourself and measure the accomplishments through your body. There's a whole range of freedoms that these women experience and the whole reason for them wanting to explore those freedoms.
1: And in this landscape, you can measure that visually.
2: You can see that at work in Ellen Wheaton's writing in particular, because she walked around the Lake District while she was working in the area as a governess and then went off on a solo tour of the Isle of Man. And one of the things that she most relishes during that tour is looking back at the Lake District and recounting all of the mountains that she's climbed being able to just tick them off oh yes that one and that one and that one and that sense of pride and accomplishment is freeing for her
1: is walking alone part of that freedom
2: Yes, and certainly the opportunity to walk alone is part of that freedom. I think you're absolutely right. I'm thinking of someone like Dorothy Wordsworth, who, as she becomes older, as her husband starts having children, becomes more tightly bound up with the domestic duties of the house. She takes on quite a lot of the childcare, and that starts to have an effect on how often she can get out and walk. So walking alone for her is in part a freedom from those obligations. And I think for some of the other women as well, being able to walk alone wasn't necessarily uncomplicated. Ellen Wheaton found walking alone some sometimes quite anxiety inducing Uh, when she was walking up Snowdon on her own uh, she had to resist the importuning of a a gentleman coming down the mountain he'd hired a guide and both men were trying to get hold of her attention and tell her things and she she writes in her letters after she was perfectly confident of her way, she pretended to be deaf to their entreaties uh, because she really did just want to walk up that mountain all on her own and she manages to avoid their attentions and then has this extraordinary experience on the mountain top where she sees this crow flying and imagines herself into its being and what it must be like to be that bird and I think anyone who's walked alone knows that different thoughts, different experiences are possible when you're not talking to people Uh, Nan Shepherd, in particular um, a Scottish writer based in the Cairngorms enjoyed walking on her own said that the perfect walking companion was someone who didn't chatter, so that balance between being at peace with yourself being able to get out on your own that was something that was really important to a lot of women I think.
1: It's gone all tranquil now the shower has moved over and the bathers have moved on and the reflections are absolutely exquisite. It's later afternoon, but it's just a gorgeous spot to be. There's a mallard duck there, duck and a drake, and they're quite content. I'd be content to go along towards Lufferig Cavern. Wow, what a place. This is Lufferig Cavern, or Luffrig Cave. And although it's probably not pertinent to Harriet Martineau, it probably wasn't here when she came, but for anybody following this podcast and actually physically following the map I'll do for the route after, uh, they'll want to come here because you're a Laker in terms of geology when you get here. The cut out rocks, chipped out, probably dynamited out or blasted out. This would have been the source of Many houses in Ambleside itself and Rydal and Grasmere. It's just got that lovely, raw feel about it. There's nothing smooth here, everything's angular. And the water's dripping from the roof of the cavern. And you look out through the great jaws at the entrance towards Nabskar, which is lit by sunlight and beautiful trees there. It's just a magical spot. You can understand why lots of people come here. A wonderful wander over through the Juniper, which is quite substantial, little forest of it. We brushed through, over the shoulder of the fell, joining a more substantial path that links over towards Chapel Style. But we branched off it and we've got our first glimpse of Windermere. You can see Bowness on Windermere and Ray Castle is prominent with Clare Heights to its right. And I can see Coniston Old Man and Wetherlam but we that's distracting our attention from what we're really here to talk about mrs harriet she was like a sociologist wasn't she
2: Yes, absolutely, and and she writes about how important uh, walking is to the uh, observation that a good sociologist should make. She writes quite scathingly about the people who sit in the carriages and trundle on by, looking at things through the windows without actually engaging in any particular way with the things that they're supposed to be studying. So for her, getting out of the carriage, walking for herself, getting amongst people was really important to her ability to understand things. It's rather like
1: people go on great train journeys, and it's only when they get out at the station talk to the porter or anybody local that they get really focused on the reality of the new place. And she was great at mixing with people, wasn't she?
2: Yeah, so you can see this the social and the sociological coming together with Harriet Martineau, that it was really important for her to be around and among people partly because she enjoyed studying them, but also just because she enjoyed people. Um, and when she moved to the Lake District, that was a really important part of what she was doing. Um, and again, we've, we've talked a little bit about the complexities of her publishing about the Lake District. It's partly because she loved it's also a shrewd move. In the same sort of way, becoming acquainted with the famous people of the Lake District, she was herself very famous, so people would have sought out her acquaintance. And there's a lot of sociability that she talks about in her writings about the lakes, calling in on people like the Wordsworths, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's son lives nearby, and other prominent literary figures too, all pop up in Martineau's walks.
1: So then we come to 1855 and the publication of her most significant Lakeland book...
2: Yes, that's right. A Complete Guide to the English Lakes uh, was written by Martineau and published in 1855. Um, And it was part of a a broader increase in interest in Lakeland tourism. Um, Guidebooks had been published for 70 or so years. William Wordsworth had written one that was very well-received and very prominent and there was an increasing market for this sort of thing. So um, there was a lot of books like this out there, but Martineau's became one of the best-selling of the later 19th century, one of the most um, significant. And I think what makes the guide so special and so interesting is that this sociability is on display again and and now it's not just these famous figures it's it's bringing in the reader as well so she ushers the reader takes them under her wing and takes them on walks with her through the various places introduces them to the people that she knows these famous literary figures and she uses such inclusive language the plural pronouns are us and we and you feel like you're walking right alongside with her so very companionable
1: she even talked about the sort of things you took with you when you were out walking like modern gear as it were
2: yeah, absolutely. It was it was a complete guide. It wasn't just you should visit this famous site. Here is a lovely waterfall. You take your carriage over here. It was a really detailed, you know, intended to get people up and into the landscape. So she would advise people what to put in a knapsack. And when she talks about guides to a particular walks, she hesitates and offers multiple possibilities before settling on what she thinks will give the reader the best possible experience, the best general overview of the Lake District. And and there's that lovely sense of a peopled landscape as well, of taking you around. In this populated place it's a it's community. about it's, it's absolutely a community it's about the inhabitants as much as the views they're all important they all make the lake district
1: so uh, it was probably 50 years after wordsworth's guide to, to the lake district
2: was there sort of a competition in the in her mind I think in some ways, yes. I mean, Wordsworth's Guide gets republished um, through the the, the decades after its initial appearance and it's still very popular. And by this point, Wordsworth's reputation as the most prominent, the most significant poet of the Lake District is really starting to be cemented. So there is this canonical figure to aim for, this man who has made himself representative of what the Lake District is, what you should see and what you should do. So I think there is a sense in which Martineau is at least mindful of that. Though her approach is very different. Wordsworth this very distant um, sort of this grand overview of the of the places, whereas Martineau, as we've talked about, is a great deal more companionable, more personable, more intimate.
1: And the really exciting thing for her was that it was an instant
2: success. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she caught the market just right. Um, tourism was increasing rapidly. And that companionable feeling, which well, I think we, if you read it now, you'll, you'll find as well, really resonated with people. Um, and it continued to have significance for, for several decades after its first appearance.
1: I think we should race on because the dusk is coming. I want to get to Lily Tarn. Amazing. we come up onto a, a, a wonderful viewpoint overlooking Lily Tarn and the upper reaches of Windermere. And we're not alone. We've got a gaggle of youngsters with a, a guide. Probably it might be brownies, cubs, something of that. They're enjoying this and there's a group of people on top of Todd Crank. And it's a marvellous sweet round. What a view. You can see um, Wandsfeld Pike, for all listeners who know. Yoke, Ilbel, Frozek. Towards Cordell Moor, and then of course Dovecrag and Hartcrag and fell and Ulscarf, gosh, and you see the very top of Harrison Stickle and Bowfell and Crinkle Crags. Wow, what a wonderful spot! Let's bring ourselves back to the latter years of Harriet. So um, Martineau's
2: later life um, was less active. She began to become. Unhealthy again, she started to suffer some, from some sort of heart condition that made it very difficult for her to walk. Uh, so her later years were less mobile, and she died in 1876. And rather than ending up in the Lake District, which maybe would have been a preference, she is in fact buried in the jewellery Quarter in Birmingham. But that is a, that is next to her mother, and that's where her family were from. So there's a there's a homeliness to that.
1: What would you say would be her lasting sort of legacy?
2: I think her legacy has perhaps been a little obscured. that Her reputation hasn't been quite what it should have been. There's an increasing amount of work being done on Martineau and her writings. And I think she's increasingly taking her place as one of the most important figures in Lakeland history. And I think that would be the legacy that she might choose for herself, is to be remembered as belonging to this landscape, of having helped make that landscape available to other people who might want to come and belong themselves to this place. Uh, and hopefully that will continue to be the case.
1: Harriet was a great woman. I think you're quite a walker yourself, really, over the years. Uh, I'm not sure I'd say I was a
2: great walker. I'm certainly a keen walker, um, not necessarily a particularly good walker. Uh, Walking's meant for me an opportunity to get my body back in shape. Um, I found walking really helpful in keeping my weight balanced um, and being physically fit. I I dislike running intensely and watching all these fell runners has made me feel quite twitchy. Um, (laughs) But walking for me is an absolutely wonderful way of seeing and being. I, I like the fact that if I just keep putting my feet in front of the other, I will eventually get anywhere that I can climb anything even though I never have and probably never will look like an actual mountaineer um, that still I can get up to the very tops if I choose um, so there's a freedom for me as well a, a, perhaps a different freedom to the women we've talked about but a freedom to to be the best that I can be to see things that you can't see anywhere else and the sunset we're currently witnessing being a prime example just the magnificent light the early autumn light is just terrific and, and only by walking up here can you see that so I think that's one of the reasons why I love walking is it just opens up these unexpected and very beautiful moments that
1: live long in the memory of all the women you've written about are there any that you would instinctively feel most dear and close to I think for me
2: Dorothy Wordsworth is one of the writers that speaks to me in part because she doesn't she, she loves going up a hill she loves climbing to the top of Scarfell she's very accomplished and very physically capable and I probably wouldn't have been able to keep up with her But I also like that she gives equal priority to local walking, to the familiar, to the the lower level, the homely. And I think when we look at mountain literature, the sorts of walking that gets prioritised is the grand, the adventurous, the dangerous. And I think Dorothy's writing reminds us that there is enormous meaning and power in the local and the familiar. And that re-walking the same paths over and again can be just as profound as conquering, you know, whatever unknown peak it is. That there's something particularly special about keeping it local and being at home.
1: Of all the women you've written about, is the one you'd really love to have had the opportunity to actually walk with, and where would you go? Well, I'm just thinking about the
2: answer to that question, and I'm running through them. all thinking, well, they're all so fast, they're all so fit. Um, Carter's terrifying; um, she'd leave me in the ditch somewhere. Uh, Dorothy Wordsworth can walk forty miles in a day; I can't do that, so they're all rather frightening <laughs> as, <laughs> as walking companions. I fear I would end up like Greg and Romilly, left in the ditch somewhere. But I think if I could choose um, a writer who's no longer with us, it would probably be Nan Shepherd, who's shown me new ways of thinking about the Cairngorms. Another terrifying prospect. She walks up things I wouldn't dare. She, you know, explores caverns and crevices that I'm too timid to go to. But the way she talks about trying to find other places to explore, you don't have to go up high. I think she could show me some very interesting
1: parts of the Cairngorms that I probably wouldn't otherwise find. Anyway, we've got to that exciting moment, Kerry, which uh, some of our guests enjoy. <laughs> it's called the quickfire questions. Uh, your perfect Lakeland day. Oh, perfect Lakeland day, that's easy. Up
2: up to the top of Scarfell Pike, come back via Styhead and the corridor route and swim in the tarn. Oh,
1: well done you. That's it, Styhead tarn.
2: Have you got a first Lakeland memory? I have a very vivid memory of climbing my first ever peak in the lake. In the lakes, that was Catbells. Um, I came up for a conference on Robert Southey. I'd never been to the lakes before. Got dragged up there by a friend and force-fed Kendall mint cake. He assured me it was delicious, and it was absolutely not delicious.
1: <laughs> I was up there not long ago. And there was two youngsters <laughs> drinking wine. That sounds much much better. <laughs> uh, have you got a favourite fell? Um, I've, oh,
2: there's several that I've really enjoyed climbing. Um, Blencathra is perhaps one of my favorites. I've, I've walked that three times, got soaking wet the first time, climbed up two of the ridges, spectacular views. Uh, just such an interesting hill. So many ways up and down. Absolutely
1: fantastic. Sharp edge is quite something though. Isn't it? It, it
2: is, I love sharp edge. I really, I, I do love a scramble. Brilliant. Red squirrel or herdwick sheep? Oh, how can you choose between those two things? A red squirrel, but reluctantly. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Wainwright. Why particularly? Oh, uh, I, no, I, I just, I find Wordsworth a little stuffy, and I, I've, I found Wainwright's guides were really helpful to me when I started getting out into the Lake District Hills, so they will always have a, a fond spot in my heart, I think. Absolutely.
1: If you were to be reincarnated in one period in Cumbrian history, when would it
2: be? It would have to be the romantic period, I know I keep going back to this, but I would love to be in Dove Cottage the moment that Sir Walter Scott jumps out of the window because he's so fed up with the catering that ah. he's absconding to the pub. I would, I would just like to be there for that moment and then, then come
1: back, I don't want to get any of the illnesses. I'd just like to see that moment. Oh, fabulous. And finally, if you were Prime Minister for the day and you could do just one thing to sustain the landscapes and culture of Cumbria, what would you try to achieve?
2: I try and implement an open access law of the sort that we have in Scotland so that you could wander at will with responsibility for the landscape wherever you wanted. I think that would be a terrific thing to
1: have. Absolutely, I think Scotland's well ahead of the game. And well, you've been absolutely wonderful today, I've really loved it. Harriet Martineau is a new hero for me. Thank you for coming all the way down from Peebles. Thank you for having me, it's been an absolute joy.
0: journey's end back at Rothy park night falling fast now mark and a, a chill in the air
1: it's autumnal indeed as we came off the fell from todd crag vicinity there was definitely a chill in the air and, it, and it's getting dark first time we've had a, a really genuinely dusk finish
0: yes there was one other one actually when we did finish and it was very very dark
1: and, Were, and any was listeners? that
0: andrew mccloy was that then
1: that'll be dufton yes
0: yeah Yes, yeah, so uh, we're back here, and, yeah, what, what a great woman she was. Absolutely. Harriet Martineau, what a star.
1: I was completely oblivious to her social interaction, her interaction with the Lakeland passes, the lakes, and, more importantly of all, the society, the creative society, and her capacity, as uh, Kerry pointed out, her capacity to share
0: with her readers interesting that she picked up that harriet wrote a different kind of guidebook every generation almost seems to get a different one so that you get the the kind of slightly drier one wordsworth you obviously had the kind of west guys gilpin and then coming up to the present day wainwright and then yourself mark and everybody interprets the lakes in their own way and and harriet's way was this personable chatty practical way in this peopled landscape And I also love this idea that she had this great ambition to be a Laker, in her words. It was really important to her to fit in and to make this place her own.
1: Yeah, indeed. Having had the pleasure of being with James Rebanks, where there's this feeling in the farming community of this longevity and this shared next generational connection, the hefting, you get that feeling that people who really take this place to heart instinctively want to feel it belongs to them and that they are part of it. Whatever society you come from, Lakeland has
0: that draw to it. Yep. So, housekeeping. All previous episodes are at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can also view photos there from our wanders and the maps from the walks. And actually, today's map, because it is a gorgeous little wander, this one, and I, I think after the last few walks, we haven't really stretched our legs but this is a goodie much to be recommended now you can find us on social media if you uh, do such things we are on Facebook and Twitter Country Stride one if you like what we do please do rate us on your podcast provider that's um, a great way for us to interact with more listeners now as dusk falls we're saying goodbye from Ambleside from Rothay Park and we'll be back in another couple of weeks
1: thanks for listening everyone I hope your book uh, sustains at least that uh, uh, 30 decades. No, (laughs) (laughs) that would find something.
2: I would take that. I would take that. 30 decades. (laughs) You transcend the
1: lot. Please, can we keep
0: that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be a (laughs) okay. I know. I want that one. I might put it in somewhere. Right, let's do that. And then, can you give us a? Yeah. Where are we? Dusk is falling, so we're going to hurry on to.